Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the Trump. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 11th. Today, a backlash to elephant conservation efforts, an unconventional idea to address homelessness, and reimagining Bauhaus on its 100th anniversary. To understand the ban on elephant hunting, you kind of have to look at who did it. Max Barrick is the Africa bureau chief for The Post, and he's been reporting in Botswana, where government officials recently legalized elephant hunting after a five-year ban that was put in place by the last president. So that's President Ian Kama, who is, you know, right up there in the elite class of people in Botswana. His father was a freedom fighter and the first president of Botswana. And Ian Kama inherited both the presidency and the chieftainship. His family has been at the forefront of Botswana politics uh, since the beginning. Max says that the ban on elephant hunting isn't necessarily about elephants. Instead, it hits on issues of race and class and politics. Because for many people in Botswana, particularly for farmers who live near elephants, the rollback on the hunting ban is a welcome decision. It's less about the hunting and more about using hunty as a proxy for kind of a larger statement. And that statement is being made by the new president of Botswana, who's up for election in just a few months. That new president is Mohitsi Masisi. And what he's essentially arguing is that we need to do something to curtail elephant population growth. And while hunting is not likely to be a very effective way of doing that, it certainly comes off to a lot of people as having done something drastic, you know, allowing people to come in with rifles and shoot, in, shoot in elephants. And the reason that he feels the need to do that is because there's been this swell of anti-elephant sentiment across the country, which comes amid reports of elephants killing more people, trampling more farms while they are moving about, usually looking for water. And you went and talked to some people who have experienced that firsthand, experienced the ways that elephants have hurt their day-to-day life. Yeah, we spoke to a ton of people who've had their farms destroyed. We went there to to understand where they're coming from, and they're coming from a place of very raw anger. We also went to to kind of see how politicized the environment has become, and and it's become very political. In short. Um, People are angry that elephants were allowed 
to multiply in number like they were and want something to be done about it. But one of the things that I find really interesting is that the tourism industry and the safari industry is a big part of Botswana's economy. So for a lot of the folks who are living around or close to elephants, don't they benefit from having large elephant populations? You'd think they would, uh, and you'd hope that they would, and they hope that they would, but that's just not the case for the most part. The money that pours into Botswana, which is in the billions of dollars per year, really hasn't made it into most farming communities' hands. And so there's a, a growing sentiment that you know, we've had a growing tourism industry for years now. Where's the money? You know, why aren't we getting better roads and getting better drinking water and better infrastructure? Why, why hasn't our slice of Botswana turned into a place that looks like hundreds of millions of dollars are flowing through it every year? Is that part of why this is so politicized, the idea that that local farmers and local people are not actually the ones who benefit from the elephants, but it's a bunch of it's a bunch of foreigners, I imagine, largely white people who come in and who are more who are the bigger advocates for conservation, but also the people who are benefiting economically from this. Exactly. And and it's not just foreigners or white people, but in a lot of cases it is the descendants of a colonial settler class that remains in Botswana and South Africa and Zimbabwe and Kenya and mostly other former British colonies uh, where you have white South Africans and white Kenyans and white Botswanans. And so the resentment is not just that those people are keeping the money, but it's that they always kept that money. Hmm. And the, instead of giving up their land when the colonial period ended, they converted that land into conservation land and are now perhaps, you could argue, using that land as a way of, of holding on to disproportionate power in the countries they live in. What is this controversy? What does it say about... Botswana as as a place and as a culture. Well, Botswana is is a country that relies economically on tourism and diamonds uh, for the most part, but in reality, most people are farmers, and in, in that kind of agrarian society uh, where there are so many animals, you're going to have a conflict at some point. Um, Farmers don't want animals on their land, but they do need animals to float the entire economy and keep prices down and, you know, eventually, hopefully lead to infrastructure development and the broader development of the country. So Botswana is kind of at a crossroads in that sense. It needs to figure out how to protect the majority of its population, which are farmers, while also protecting elephant populations. 
Max Barrick is the Post's Africa Bureau Chief, based in Nairobi. So we're headed to Sedgwick Gardens, an apartment complex in northwest Washington. This building's in a very nice neighborhood. It's a mix of uh, low-rise apartment buildings, some high-rise apartment buildings, local small businesses. This is very much, you know, when people think of your sort of affluent liberal neighborhood in northwest Washington, Cleveland Park is really the prime example of that. It's uh, mild, I'd say, in the 70s. Lovely spring day. Peter Jamison is a staff writer at The Post. I cover politics and government in the District of Columbia. And Peter was out on this spring day for a story that started with the residents of Cedric Gardens. You know, we often get complaints from people, especially in some parts of the city, who have problems with their new neighbors or new business moving in down the street that they don't like. Often a lot of these complaints are chucked by reporters in the NIMBY file, not in my backyard. <laughs> and, you know, we just don't write about many of these conflicts. But in the case of Cedric Gardens, it wasn't just run-of-the-mill noise complaints. Last year, a SWAT team had been called to the building, and a man had died of a drug overdose. So it struck me from the beginning that this was a situation where something might be going on that was more than initially met the eye at this apartment complex. We can go up and talk to Jane, though, and then we'll come back by. Because so. this is, is really good What made Cedric Gardens so unusual was that this upscale apartment building was becoming this testing ground, part of a larger national social experiment to combat homelessness. We face in our city, like many others, historic economic inequality. And far too many people are, in fact, living on the streets. D.C., like many other cities and states across the country, when it comes to dealing with homelessness... And that's why we're on a mission. ...has adopted what's called the housing first approach, which means that unlike traditional approaches to getting people off the street, which often required the homeless who have chronic problems such as mental illness or addiction to go through some period of treatment, some type of kind of probationary period in a residential facility... The housing first approach just says, well, let's first of all get these people into permanent housing. We can afterward and along the way provide help to them to deal with their problems. This housing first idea has been adopted by other cities trying to combat homelessness. Cleveland's done it. Orlando. San Diego. And the way that D.C. implements it, it starts off with a housing voucher. You know, it's really carte blanche. As long as you don't have certain felony crimes you've committed within a certain period of time, you can take your housing voucher and you can move in anywhere in the city that you can afford to live based on the rent. And the housing vouchers, do they pay for the entire cost of living in an apartment, part of the cost? They do. So they'll pay your entire rent. The way these housing vouchers work is that you're on the hook for 30% of your income towards your rent. The government will pick up the rest. If you don't have any income, is you know, many homeless people don't, then the government picks up the entirety of the rent. And what changed and what began happening at Sedgwick Gardens two years ago is that, you know, previously with these housing vouchers, there were certain parts of D.C. that were especially desirable to live in that had high rents that just as a matter of economics, you couldn't move into with a housing voucher. The D.C. Housing Authority recognizing that 
two years ago, they increased the maximum value of housing vouchers to 175% of what HUD defines as fair market rent. So that suddenly brings within the reach of people who, you know, just yesterday were living on the street or in a homeless shelter, very desirable neighborhoods in the district, such as Cleveland Park, where Sedgwick Gardens is. So what does that mean in terms of the real prices of apartments in D.C.? In Sedgwick Gardens, I spoke to one person who moved in without a government housing subsidy in 2017 to a one-bedroom apartment where he paid $2,200 a month. That year, the allowance for a voucher at Sedgwick Gardens would have been more than $2,600 a month as given by the D.C. Housing Authority. So suddenly, not only is it, not only are you on par as a voucher resident with other people who are renting without a subsidy, but you actually have a built-in advantage where landlords now have a financial incentive to take on voucher residents that previously they didn't. So after the changes to the vouchers were put in place, what percent of the people living at Sedgwick Gardens were people who were using vouchers? I was told by D.C. officials that their estimate was that between 50 and 70 people with vouchers were living at Sedgwick Gardens. This is in a, an apartment building of 140 units. So about half. About half. D.C. officials had high hopes for how this would all pan out. The hope and the vision is that uh, essentially these people can live as anyone else would, that, you know, just because you were homeless until recently doesn't mean you can't have sort of the dignity and autonomy that any other person would have in these apartment units. And then what actually happened? It hasn't worked out that way. From the beginning, some of the residents who moved in felt that they were looked at with some suspicion by the more established tenants. There have been noise complaints, complaints about smoke, both marijuana smoke and tobacco smoke in the air. Which honestly uh, you'll get at any D.C. apartment building. It, exactly. One thing that residents got very upset about was the discovery of feces of undetermined provenance in the stairwell at one point. You know, one gentleman I spoke to told me about an interaction he had with another tenant where he was smoking outside one day, you know, just in the parking lot at what was then his home. And a woman came up to him and said, you know, there's a park up the street you can smoke at. And he said, well, you know, this is where I live. So why wouldn't I smoke here? I think those instances over time added up where some of the voucher holders felt like they were not really being welcomed by the more established tenants in the building. What did those more established tenants say about what their experiences were like with this? In theory, a lot of these people support the goals of the housing program and support government intervention to help the homeless in this way. But the dynamic was different when these people actually began moving in down the hall from them. Well, hi. hi Jane. How are you? Okay. We went up to Sedgwick Gardens and spoke with Jane Harden, who is a woman who's lived in the building for three decades. I moved here in September 1974 was one of the younger tenants when I moved in. Like many other tenants there, she's a person of, uh, you know, in some ways of sort of progressive political bent. She worked for a great society agency. She's a retired attorney. There, were no, there was no announcement about a change. I, I did notice people of color moving in who had not, and that was uh, unusual in our building to have very many people. And she has really welcomed a lot of the changes at the building that have come with the voucher holders. I have frequently lived in uh, neighborhoods that were uh, diverse economically, socially, and racially. And I found them to be interesting and enjoyable places to live. 
you know, she likes seeing some of the mothers with young children who have moved in. There were more children suddenly, and I liked that a lot. But she also, for instance, has a woman who lives down the hall from her who screams and moans incoherently for hours on end through the day and night. And it's usually not words, kind of guttural sounds, but very loud. And I do find that disconcerting and sometimes even frightening. Sedgwick Gardens has dealt with a number of high-profile public safety incidents over the past year. What were those incidents? Probably the best known was in March of last year. A SWAT team was called to the building after police responded to a noise complaint. This was a man named Robert Gingle who was in his apartment throwing things around, making noise. When the police announced themselves, he threatened to shoot them and said he had a shotgun. This man was involved in a standoff overnight with the police. He was arrested in the morning. As it turned out, he didn't have a gun. No one was hurt. He was released, and then he was rearrested shortly afterward when he attacked another tenant and hit them over the head with a flashlight. Mm -hmm. That was one incident. About a month later, the police were called to do a welfare check on a resident who hadn't been seen in some weeks. A staff uh, member at the building let them into this person's apartment, and they found them unresponsive and not breathing. The cause of death was an overdose from fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid that is often involved in heroin overdoses. So, you know, with a fatal overdose and the SWAT team, again, these were just the type of instance people in the apartment complex weren't necessarily used to. And they began questioning, you know, whether the tenants who had moved in there were actually getting the services they needed. Through all of this, I think there are a majority of the tenants who honestly don't notice most of this. But since I've lived here a long time, um, and people who live here a long time tend to be more concerned. Some of the people complaining about what's happened up there are not just older, more established tenants who don't want the new voucher holders in the building. Some of the voucher holders themselves feel like they're not happy with how the apartment complex has changed since they moved in. Hello? Can you hear any sounds? So Lawrence is a great example of sort of the the first wave of of tenants who move into Sedgwick Gardens once it kind of opened its doors to voucher holders a couple years ago. And how has that worked out for him? He has liked it, but, you know, interviewing him, he told me, he said, you know, I came up here because I wanted to be away from the violence and foolishness of of Southeast Washington. And um, I moved here, then the violence and foolishness kind of followed me up here. You know, people were barricading themselves in the room, uh, fussing, fighting, arguing and fighting going on and dying and stuff of drugs. You know, the city contracts with a number of third-party providers in the district that are supposed to be providing follow-up social services to people who move in. Once these complaints began emerging earlier this year, that they they went an extra step and they began posting a social worker there every night just to deal with any additional problems that might arise on the property. Are you hearing whether that has helped? Things have gotten somewhat quieter there, but residents say that the problems have not diminished to the point where they consider the situation resolved. So all of what's happening at Cedric Gardens was an attempt to put into action this this housing first idea. What do you think that what's been happening at Cedric Gardens says about that policy and how the city is approaching it? What's happening in D.C. is not unusual. There's a formidable body of research that shows that housing first is effective when it's done right, that people 
stay in their homes longer and have better long-term success when housing first is adopted as an approach. But at the same time, I think some experts have begun to pump the brakes a little bit and say, well, housing first works, but we need to be careful in how we apply it. And we can't just apply it indiscriminately in a way that is not attentive to individual situations. Everyone's looking for a magic bullet. You know, everyone's looking for a solution to homelessness that will be straightforward and will be easy. And in cities, there's often tremendous political pressure to find a a solution that's simple and easy as you want to bring your rates of homelessness down. But the situation at Sedgwick Gardens shows that this isn't easy to do. It's not a simple problem to solve. And the, the mantra of experts who I spoke to is housing first, but not housing only, that, you know, you really need to pay attention to the follow through in terms of the support you provide people once you have a roof over their heads. And it's not clear that that has always been happening at, at Sedgwick Gardens. Peter Jamison covers D.C. politics and government for The Post. Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. Listen to the story of the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of Donald Trump to President of the United States. Download and listen today. And now, one more thing. This year, Germany marks the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus movement. The term Bauhaus usually conveys ideas of minimalist, block-shaped buildings or sleek designer chairs that don't look very comfortable. But reporter Louisa Beck has been exploring how the ideas of Bauhaus are bigger and more utopian than any building or piece of furniture. And she recently met a jazz pianist who's been imagining what Bauhaus could have sounded like. Michael Wolny is my name. I'm a pianist and... uh... I was commissioned to write the opening concert for the Bauhaus 100, 100 Years of Bauhaus Festival last night. If anything, I think the Bauhaus was a place where people were really into experimenting. Because it foremost was a school. It was a school of trying to go beyond limits and work together, coming from painting, from workshops of all kinds. And by combining all these efforts, they were looking for, you know, doing something unheard of. But to do that, they first had to shed the past. It was 1919. The First World War had just ended. And to the Bauhaus founders, it was clear that all the old rules and social hierarchies and ways of doing things had utterly failed. So they needed to start from scratch. They wanted to create a new democracy, a new environment to work and live and experiment in. And in the Bauhaus school they founded, they got rid of labels like architect and artist. Instead, all students were required to become familiar with basic building blocks, materials like wood, metal, glass, and textiles. Bauhaus teachers wanted students to be familiar with every aspect of these basic materials. You can hear the musical translation of that idea here, 
a wine glass is being played by a bow. You can feel the glass getting into resonance, and then he had, you know, like banging the glass into each other and also breaking them at the end. So this is all different sounds that can be created with that specific material. By going back to these basic materials and making them the foundation of their curriculum, the Bauhaus teachers thought their students could rebuild a more egalitarian and democratic society. But there was another new building block that in 1919 became more and more pervasive. Machines and the ability to mass-produce using new technologies. The Bauhaus founders had to figure out whether to reject automation entirely or incorporate machines in their school and designs. There were huge disagreements even then. Would machines and the objects they could mass-produce make society more just? And what would they do to human creativity? What you're hearing now are two pianos, but only one is being played by a human. The machine is just built in front of the keyboard, and for every key, there's a corresponding lever on the machine. And so here, Michael is literally playing a duet with a machine. Right now, there's all this talk about what are algorithms doing to our society and what are algorithms doing to our way of thinking and behaving and social interaction and stuff. You can see the dangers of what is happening with some of the possibilities we have right now. Nevertheless, it's part of human nature, I think, to just keep on testing limits. But the questions at stake seem to get higher, I think. Luisa Beck is a reporter in the Berlin Bureau of the Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by going to our website, postreports.com. And join in on the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports on Twitter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.